So we've been practicing together for about one day, engaging in these various forms of exploration together. And I'd like to just reflect a little bit on what we could say perhaps what we're doing, what this is this activity is embedded within. I think for all of us there's a natural draw, a natural interest, a natural pull towards a sense of what is possible for us. We might call it happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction. Might think of it in terms of peace or or some fulfillment of our potential. And I think we're also drawn towards the healing, the releasing, the freeing of our hearts and our lives from that which is difficult, painful, that which we find hard to bear. And these are common features of human life and I think all life really. In a simple way we could describe it as the interest and the wish that leads us to seek for happiness and to to know the end of suffering and what that might be. And yet we don't necessarily know how this comes about. We don't necessarily understand what leads to this. It's not something we've necessarily been taught, in fact. And so I often find myself reflecting on one of the uh, one of the phrases, one of the observations the Buddha made of his own teaching. And he was a, as I said yesterday evening, he was a human being who had some remarkable understanding that he shared with people who were interested in it. And he, he observed once, he said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. This is how it's translated or one way it's translated. And I remember thinking with a friend, we were discussing, I think, well, that's a little curious. It sounds like two things, doesn't it? And one imagines, oh, maybe he just started off teaching about suffering and not so many people were interested. Maybe talking just about suffering doesn't really get us going. It, you know, it doesn't fill meditation halls or attract people. We're interested not just in the, the truth of what is challenging and difficult for us, but also what might lead to its release, to its end, to its transformation. And this is essentially the path that we are engaged in in our lives, we could say. Coming to understand for ourselves through the forms of particular teachings and practices, whether Buddha's teaching or other teachings. Coming to understand for ourselves what leads to happiness, what supports the ending of, of suffering, the healing of pain. Because the condition of our heart and our mind, it matters to us. I don't think this is news to anybody. It matters to us. Our inner experience is something we're concerned with deeply, profoundly, perhaps more than anything else. And yet we don't necessarily know or understand the mechanisms and processes whereby this experience is shaped and formed. How it comes to be, the way it is. This experience that's happening right now of having a heart, having a mind, having a body, being subject to this life. And so in the, in the Buddha's teaching he pointed to three particular areas which it's really important for us to be aware of and to give attention to. And I would phrase these as really the foundations of happiness. I would see them as the foundations of happiness. And we could call them goodness, presence, and wisdom. And goodness is, is not something about um, sort of somehow being a goody-good sort of person. It's more the, the way in which the condition of our hearts and our mind and the sense of well-being in our life is affected by the orientations by the way we orient our life, what we orient our life towards. And particularly in terms of, of sharing and of taking care, with sharing what we have and taking care with how we act in the world. 
The Buddha spoke of the power of generosity as something profoundly uplifting, something we can practice, something that brings joy and delight. Above most things that worldly actions can bring us, acting in ways that express a sharing and a caring for others actually delights us, uplifts us, nourishes us, and brings meaning, fulfillment and happiness. And likewise he spoke about non-harming as a basis, as a foundation for well-being and happiness, understanding that our actions impact on others and impact on ourselves. We look, if we, if we attend carefully to our experience, what we see is that the condition of our heart and our mind is very primarily conditioned, fundamentally impacted by whatever motivations lead us into action. When we act from selfishness, from greed, from disregard for others, out of irritation or anger, we actually experience pain and suffering ourselves. It doesn't always look that way. Sometimes it seems like we might get an advantage that way. But if we look and if we explore, carefully examine our lives, I think we can see for ourselves. Certainly it's something I see for myself very clearly in my own life, as I think the Buddha did in his. So we, we can understand a foundation for well-being and happiness is taking care of our action, orienting towards action that takes care of the welfare of others and refraining from action that causes harm to others. Equally, action that causes harm to ourselves. And so action, how we act, how we live our life, is very much at the heart of how we find a connection with or access to a depth of happiness, well-being and fulfillment in life. It's not a random event due to our good or lack of good fortune that we find ourselves happy or otherwise. Nor is it our fault if we find we're struggling to find fulfillment and meaning in, in life. Because again, as I said, for most of us it's not something we've been taught. It's not something that our education system, that our culture actually outlines to us particularly well at all. If we act out of reactivity, if we act out of selfishness, out of disregard, with disregard for others, it actually hurts us as well as others. And yet in order to not do so, we need to be mindful, we need to be awake, we need to be present, or else our patterns and our habits and our reactive tendencies tend to dominate us, tend to drive us. And in our culture, in our world, of course, so much encouragement is given to actually just following those patterns, just going for, in a way, the idea of, you know, get more of what you want and don't really worry about other people too much is quite a strong underlying message in our materialistic culture. And assume that they'll get the same for themselves if you leave them to it. You don't need to worry about them. And we know this isn't true, but nonetheless it's a very powerful thread within our world. And so one of the initial things that, that's happening as we engage in this process of practice is we start to see what goes on in our mind and our heart. We start to notice what actually does have an impact upon us. It's not for us to necessarily believe what someone tells us, but we can look and see for ourselves what, what actually goes on there, what happens. And in order to be able to do so, we need to be present. We need to be awake. Otherwise, we simply repeat the patterns and the tendencies that are already established from the past. It's hard to find fresh and creative responses we're not even, when we're not even aware of the reactivities or the responses that are taking place. And we also need to be able to give ourselves permission to treat this process as a learning process, not as a sort of a performance. That's why we talk about practice. It's not 
performance. Medi- you know, let's do some meditation performance. Show me how good you can do it. Yeah, you know. It's not like that. Even though we're sitting on a slightly raised stage, we're not performing here for you. And you're not performing for us. We're practicing. And the thing about practice is, because you understand you're practicing, you're allowed to make mistakes. That's what practice is for. Of course, at another, another level, of course, you know, as one, I think, uh, bumper sticker, I once, you know, this is your life. This isn't a rehearsal for your life. This is your life right now. But at the same time, what your life offers is the chance to learn. And so, learning processes. We kind of tragically get this idea, and we're given this idea, we buy this idea that by the time our body has grown up, we're supposed to be grown-ups. We're supposed to have figured it out. We're not allowed to let on that we actually haven't really got a clue how the hell this life thing works. So we kind of make sure we look good as much as we can most of the time. And we desperately try and make sure we don't look bad and show exactly how confused or uncertain or unskilled we are at this rather complicated, confusing task called existing. If we could give ourselves permission to say, oh, I'm just trying things out to see what works here. Suddenly it has a whole different feeling to it. Oh, I'm trying things out. Well, let's try it out this way. And if it works, well, that's great. This works. And if it doesn't work, well, hey, I've learned something about what doesn't work. Well, that's great too. It can't help but be great. Whatever happens when we approach it that way. And it takes a certain willingness, of course, to be humble and to show that we're still learning in that. But we are. And there's a, there's a great story that speaks to this of a, uh, of a Zen student of many years standing who had opportunity to meet with the, the, the most senior um, teacher in the lineage and it was a very special, precious opportunity. He, he was very excited and very Anxious as well, because the the master was known for being pretty severe, not so kindly or friendly, a sort of, well, not not unkindly, but not particularly friendly, and certainly not particularly gentle in their way of dealing with students. And so he, he went and he, he bowed to the to the to the master, and she's sitting there like a mountain. She's sort of she's not that tall, but she is solid, and you can feel the presence of her practice. And he bows down to her, and he says, "Master, master." And he knows he's only got time for two or three questions. She won't let him stay very long. He says, can you tell me what's the most important thing to cultivate? She looks at him. She says, discernment, good judgment. He says, oh yes, thank you, thank you. Uh, how, how, do you cultiv- how do you develop? How do you get that? And she says, hmm, experience. Oh, thank you, of course, of course. How do you get experience? Bad judgment. Lack of discernment. How do we learn? We learn exactly in the places where because we don't yet know, we end up going, oh, that doesn't work. But that's how we learn. So give yourself that possibility here. Allow yourself to learn from your life. And in doing so, then we can actually start to come into a state of being at peace with our life. In the realm of action, as I was speaking just before, it's not that we can perfectly avoid causing any harm to anything or anyone or ourselves. It's not possible to exist without impacting life. But finding and learning what's possible for me and ways to do that with less impact, with more care for others, for myself to do the best we can in terms of that, to learn how we can do that. This gives, I think, a natural sense of, of peace. And the, the Buddha spoke of the condition of non-regret, which isn't a kind of a pride or arrogance, you know, I've had a perfect life, but non, non-regret, a state in which one's done the best one can to live one's life according to what we value and what we care for the most. 
And this is something that actually at a very fundamental level supports the mind to rest. To just have a sense, yeah, I did what I could here. I helped those I could. I couldn't help everybody. Sure. I made an effort to not cause harm where that was possible for me to do so. And the harm that I couldn't help but causing, we, can, we have to live with that. Because that's how it is. And so this is really sort of foundational. And I, I spoke about this a little last night, but I wanted to name it again because it's so central. It's so central to the practice. What we're doing in meditation does not exist in isolation from our lives. Because the condition of our heart and mind that we're working with in meditation equally does not arise in isolation from our lives. It cannot. It cannot. And so we need to take care of our lives. Even if we come on a retreat here in a sense stepping away from them or a lot of the activity in them but in order perhaps to see more clearly that activity itself and see what may serve us, what may be possible for us in that realm. And so in simple terms we could say this is the realm of, of goodness, of, of, of non-harming and generosity, of sila and dana, the, the words the Buddha used for these qualities. And the next I'd like to speak about the second, in a way, foundation for happiness is presence. The meditative development, cultivation, or say the, the deepening in wakefulness and presence and mindfulness and consciousness that we can train, that we can learn. That doesn't happen by accident. Well, it might for a little while. But I remember when I first was traveling in Asia and just sort of attended a meditation course and thought, wow, I actually didn't have a clue what was going on because the teachers didn't really explain it. But at the same time, I felt like this is really what I was looking for. It was really useful, really helpful. But I had no real idea how to explain it to friends or family that asked me about it. And it like, oh, what is this thing, you know, sitting around, walking back and forth, sitting around a bit more, um, not talking, um, thinking a lot, you know, all of that. And I actually, in the end, the way I described it to people, I realized I want to say, it's, it's happiness training. This, this practice, this is happiness training. Training this heart, this mind, to align with the, the, both the, the way of seeing life and also the way of engaging with life that actually brings happiness and well-being. And at one level, we can see the training of the mind that we're engaging, just this bringing of it to the to the moment, to the present, to the simple experience of the breathing body or the simple experience of the moving body as we straighten the arm or as we take a step or whatever it is that we do, that we do with a sense of presence, of attentiveness, of care, inhabiting the experience as consciously as we can. And what we see as we do that, of course, is that the mind very quickly and enthusiastically and sometimes distressingly rushes away to any number of other things. And we're called to invite it back, to, to, to bring it back, to gather it again. And the way we do this is really important. It's like training a puppy. And uh, I've been very struck on um, recent times I've had the good fortune... Um, to be walking with a friend of mine who has um, he's recently got himself a puppy. Well, it's actually a bit older than a puppy now. Over the months, this has been happening. And we'll be out on Dartmoor. It's a, it's a dog that can run very fast. I think it's a lurcher. So when it decides to move, it's gone really quickly. And my friend Bill's calling it back. Um, and he's whistling and sometimes he's yelling and sometimes it's a little more excited than all of that. But generally, Jago comes back. And it's very striking that Bill always says, good dog, and gives a little treat when it's coming back in this training of the young dog, which needs to learn to be able to come and stay with us. He doesn't say, bad dog, you ran away. He says, good dog, you came back. And this is what's understood as the way that an animal, a dog, will respond and take on what it needs to learn. And us too. If every time our mind goes off somewhere else, we go, oh, I've blown it again, I can't do it, oh, I'm useless at meditation, or, you know, stupid me thinking about all of that stuff again. 
it doesn't really uplift our heart. It doesn't really encourage us. It makes us actually feel, mm, this is a kind of unpleasant experience. A bit like if every time a puppy um, ran away, you'd go and yell at it or, or sort of say, bad dog. Yeah, pretty soon the puppy thinks, this guy's pretty unfriendly. I'm getting out of here as soon as I can. But if every time you find the puppy, you say, oh, good dog, good dog, come over here. Chasing a butterfly, you know, decorating a tree, you know, sniffing a flower, whatever it does, oh, come back. And after a little while, the puppy says, oh, this guy's quite friendly, maybe I'll hang out with him. Just like that with our mind. Just like that with this attention, this movement of engagement with experience that we experience or that we can observe and feel. Oh, making an environment of friendliness, encouragement and support for every time we come back. It's like very few people say to me, wow, I spent, you know, so many times I came back during that meditation. They mostly say so many times I got lost during that meditation. But you know, if you don't come back, you can only get lost once. It's because you came back a lot of times that you got lost a lot of times. That your mind moved and actually to honour that coming back. It's actually kind of remarkable that it does. I don't know if you've thought about this. You don't need to think too much about it. But by definition, when the mind is gone, we don't even know it's gone. We're not even there in any conscious state. So how on earth does it come back when we're not even there? Because we're lost. But it does. That's kind of remarkable. And something to honour. Because of course it is not that it happens in a way that we can force, but that it doesn't happen apart from our intention to be present and awake. Our giving support to that through practising as we are. And as we come back, and we come back again and again, it's like that that very initially that experience of being fragmented, dissipated, drawn and pulled towards different stimulus, pushed by one thing, attracted to another thing. It's like it's like there's a certain gathering, a collecting, and then maybe there are sometimes moments where we notice, maybe just a moment where we're settled, where we're landing, and it's like, ah. And of course, very quickly, perhaps the mind goes, great, I've got it, I can do it. And then it realises, oh no, I'm thinking about it again. I can't do it. I'm hopeless. And we see the story start to spin. But, oh, actually, no, it's not quite that. Here we are. Let's just let it settle and see what happens. Let's just come back again and again to where we are. And as we do, as we keep coming back, there's a certain cohering, a gathering, a harmonising and a coming into focus of this ordinary and yet remarkable thing that we call wakefulness, mindfulness, consciousness, presence, and use all those words so glibly as if we knew what it was that was happening. Because it's been going on as long as we can remember. But actually, it's mysterious and remarkable that it's happening at all. That we know what's occurring in this moment, that we can be present in it. Not to be taken for granted. And so we see this this push, this pull, the way in which our mind so easily picks up the past and the future. And as someone was, you know, delightfully describing in one of the groups, um, you know, we, we see things are going well and it's like, great, you know, I hope this retreat goes on for days and weeks and then things are feeling really difficult. Oh no, I can't bear it. You mean I have to stay three more days? And this was 10 minutes after wishing it would go on for weeks. You know, we see that kind of thing go on for us in our minds. And we're pulled into the past and the future again and again. We're pulled into experience, it seems. And we learn to release it, to sit back into the conscious awareness that, oh, this is what's happening. And we start to notice as we do this how much weight we give to those experiences, how much authority we give to those experiences. It's not just that we like some experiences and we don't like others, which of course is true because some things feel good and some things don't. And naturally, understandably, we like the things that feel good and we don't like the things that don't feel good. 
that's that's just how we're wired up. It's 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 natural. But what tends to happen is not just is something difficult for us, but we tend to form a conclusion about me. My meditation's not going well means I'm a bad meditator. Actually, I'm just a bad person. I'm just bad. I'm not even really a person. I'm just defined by that negative label. It's like I've taken the fact that I can't get my mind to be quiet to mean something more about me than the fact that my mind, like every other human mind, has a mind of its own and does what it does a lot of the time. And that sense of, oh, does this define me? No, it just tells me what's happening right now. You know, if we're experiencing sorrow, sometimes we don't want to experience it because it's painful for us or scary to us. But sometimes it's also because I've somehow come to believe or I've been told that if I experience sadness, I'm a sad person. Like, that's kind of sad that you're sad. You're kind of sad. You know, and it's kind of like it's got a negative association rather than just, wow, human being, yeah, I experience sadness. I think we all experience sadness at times. Or if someone was talking about recognizing that boredom wasn't just boring, but it had a risk of meaning that I'm a boring person. Oh, that's not much fun. I definitely don't want to experience boredom if it means that I'm a boring person. But it doesn't, of course, mean that at all. It just means I experience this sometimes. And other times I experience something else. There's this interesting thing that happens in a process of meditation, such as what we're engaged, such as that we're engaged in here, that we both want this mind to be quiet, to be calm, to be peaceful. I mean, is there anyone who doesn't want their mind to be calm, quiet, and peaceful? You're probably having quite a relaxed time of your meditation, if that's the case. I expect, but mostly we do. And at the same time, we don't quite want that to happen either. We're a little conflicted, ambivalent maybe, because there's this longing for calm and for peace and for the noise and the busyness and the stress that goes on inside us to stop. We'd really like that. Even when we say, and I say it regularly, actually meditation isn't about just getting your mind to stop. Still, that's what we want. So we tend to think, well, that must be what meditation is really about. And... Sometimes, of course, different people will say it is what it's about, even teachers. And obviously the meditation about getting your mind to stop is a meditation about getting your mind to stop. Sure. But this isn't that meditation. This is the meditation about understanding your mind, freeing your mind. And that might involve the mind becoming quiet. But as much as we want the mind to stop, many of us will also find that it's kind of scary if it does because we don't then know who we are and we don't know what to do. And much as we're drawn to it, at another level, we're terrified of what it would be like if our mind stopped, even for a moment. And in that inner silence that arises, while we, again, we might wish to be present, the very experience of being present is something you can't hold. It's got nothing you can take and keep in it. And that's uncomfortable because it doesn't tell us who we are. It tells us where we are, but it doesn't tell us who we are. And again, that's uncomfortable. So it's not an accident that this apparently simple exercise is not an easy thing to engage in. You know, if you were to describe this to friends at home who'd never done it, you know, oh, so, well, we sat down, they said, you know, don't, don't do too much, just feel your body breathing, and then get up, walk back and forth, don't go anywhere, don't, don't, don't hurry, just slowly. Then, you know, maybe you can lie down for a while, move one of your arms, move one of your legs, just slowly, though, you've got plenty of time, yeah, you can move the other one now, yeah. By the end of the day, we were tired, we were exhausted. They'll be going, <laughs> really? How, how did you manage that? You know? And yet it's true. It can be really tiring doing nothing. It requires a lot of work to do nothing. Most of us have failed at doing nothing today. It's all right. You're allowed to. But you start to get a sense of what we're dealing with. There's a lot of momentum in the system to keep doing something, anything, 
Anything, even something unpleasant and painful is preferable to nothing. Or so we imagine, if we haven't ever known what it is to allow that activity to become quiet. We can't make it be quiet, but we can allow it to become quiet. And so this process of the mind seeking activity, telling stories, playing music, you know, providing entertainment, looking for interesting things to read. I don't know if anyone else reads the labels on tea bags. But on retreat is the only time I ever read the labels on tea bags. At other times there's probably more entertainment available. But we see that that pull, it's like looking for something to hold on to, to engage with. And so distractedness is not an accident. And likewise, gatheredness comes through, or this gathering together deepens through our starting to understand the process and the mechanisms of distraction, not through just cutting them off. I said in one of the groups today, and people may have been disappointed to hear that, I said, well, you know, if we were just trying to get your mind to be quiet, I wouldn't teach the meditation like this. If that was the only thing we were concerned about. And I see maybe some of you are worried. Oh no, I've come to the wrong place. Because of that kind, the easiest ways to get your mind to be quiet won't necessarily transform your mind. If I bang the spell every three seconds while we sat here, no, no one would get distracted for very long. You'd just either love the sound or you'd hate it, or probably both, but you'd be very present. But because it would be easy for you to be present with that experience, because it's loud and we're used to being impacted by sounds and attending to them in that way, it wouldn't actually require your mind to become more subtle, to be able to feel the more underlying movements of experience going on at the same time as what happens on the surface. And it wouldn't require us to to understand the process. If we could just anchor our mind easily here, we wouldn't have to understand the process of what is it that keeps taking it away. What goes on in that? And so in this practice, the development of that gathered calm and focus runs parallel to a process of understanding, of looking to see what's happening here. And they, they run together. It's not that that deepening in calm isn't an essential part of this process, but it's not a prior requirement, a prerequisite for meditation. It's actually one of the fruit of meditation. And so much of this activity, as I said, it it either gives me a sense of who I am because I define myself by it or it protects me from the even scarier experience of realizing I don't know who I am when there's nothing to do and there's nothing going on inside suddenly if I'm defined by what I'm doing or by what's happening to me or in me and I'm not doing anything and nothing's happening suddenly I don't know how to define myself and that's really scary. So again, to be kind, to be compassionate with yourself if the process isn't easy. It's naturally the case for most of us that that is so. But we can find our way in this territory. It's like learning a new landscape or terrain. We have to explore. We need to go slowly. We need to pay attention to where we put our feet, literally in this case. But that's how we go into an unfamiliar terrain. We go slowly and attentively. And it's so painful for us to live our lives if our mind is just at the mercy of its reactivity, if we're constantly pulled towards the strongest attraction or pushed by the strongest repulsion, that we feel driven in our life. There's no freedom, there's no space, there's no peace. In that. And so there's a process of developing that capacity. It's a little bit like, you know, training a muscle. We just keep doing it. We just keep doing it. And as we keep doing it, we find we're more and more able to steady and stabilize the mind in this way, in the sense of gathering. And I maybe I think I used the image, I can't remember, of like gathering one's hands together to receive water. 
Like it's you're making a vessel or a container into which this capacity starts to gather and settle. It's not that we're grabbing it. It's not that we're somehow forcing it to do something because we can't really usefully do so. And as we, as we deepen in this process, then of course the territory that we equally need to attend to is this development, as a training, as a practice, we could say, of, of, of meditative presence, of mindfulness, of awareness, of attentiveness. And you know, much of what we're practicing, in a sense, is, 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 is the art of skillful attention. How to pay attention in ways that serve our well-being. But together with that also, the, the third foundation of happiness, as I would describe it, or third sort of foundational element of the, the Buddha's teaching is, is the development of understanding, of wisdom. And looking at what is it that's moving us in our lives? And we're coming back again, what is it that moves us to live the life that we live, the way we live it? So much of what we can see is this movement of trying to get what we want and what we like, trying to get away from what we dislike and what we don't want, trying to get that which makes us feel good about ourselves, trying to get rid of that which leads to us not feeling so good about ourselves. And we seek fulfillment and happiness so often in the fleeting experiences of our lives, seeking pleasure and security that doesn't last. It doesn't last much longer than the moment of calm and peace that arose in meditation before we said, got it, it's mine. And in the very grabbing of it, it was gone. So too, so many experiences. And we need to look at this, we need to reflect on this, not just, it's not just an interesting idea. You know, so many times when we get what we want, it either doesn't last, or very quickly, it stops giving us the satisfaction it did. Have you ever tried eating a whole bar of chocolate? I shouldn't probably talk about chocolate, because you probably haven't got any with you, and you can't go down to the shop. But you know, I once ate a whole bar with a friend of mine when we were teenagers, a whole giant king-sized bar of milk chocolate, and it started off really good. So I see one or two of you frowning. Yeah, it, started, it ended up really bad. I couldn't eat milk chocolate for about... 15 years after that. Um, that's saying something because I have quite a sweet tooth. But that sense of we want more and yet even if we get more of it, actually it stops doing it for us. And here on retreat, have you noticed that sense of how we want something? We're sitting and we think, oh, I wouldn't mind doing some walking. And we're doing walking and the first few minutes are good but then we think, gosh, I can't wait for the next sitting. Well, how about the yoga? Yeah, that would be nice. Let's do some yoga. Oh, wow, that was nice, but I'd really like to get up now. I'd like to do a different posture now. Well, maybe lunch. Lunch would be good. But how long are we actually eating the lunch that we've been waiting for, looking forward to, before our mind goes looking for the cup of tea or the rest or whatever? It's like this constant movement we can see. And it comes with this sort of if we're not conscious, this unquestioned belief that that's the point at which it's going to be good, it's going to be okay, it's going to feel great. And I was in um, when I was last in New Zealand, and I in a, in a shop where I stopped, I saw one of these chocolate bars that I grew up on that you can't get here—a Whitaker's peanut slab—and it's it's not a particularly sophisticated thing. But as a kid, this was, and I, I looked at it, and there was part of me going, "I want that, I want that, I want that." And I'm going you're not really going to enjoy that. That's not really good chocolate. You know, ah, but I want it. And so I bought it. And I ate it. And I could tell as I was eating it, it wasn't really very good. But I was... And at the end of it, it's like, ah. Oh. But it's so strong, those things sometimes, you know. And we know we want them, but that actually it's really not going to do it for us. And yet we do it anyway. Because we somehow don't know how else to do this sometimes. 
And even when I think about it now, and I think, what does peanuts have? I go, yum, I'd like one of those. That's what my mind does. And I go, but really, they're 10,000 miles away, and you didn't enjoy the last one that much. Why? But it doesn't matter. It's not that intelligent. The function just goes, hmm. I probably spent a lot of time as a kid wishing I could have one when I couldn't. And now if I see one, I can, because I'm an adult. I can have what I like, at least for things that cost a pound. And of course we notice this not wanting equally. You know, sometimes we're feeling tired. And it's like, wow, I really wish I wasn't so tired, you know. And then our knee hurts, and we're not tired at all. Suddenly it's my knee hurt. I really wish my knee didn't hurt. And then we get spaced out. And we can't even feel our knee. We haven't even got a body. We're just kind of gone somewhere a long way away in the past or the future. And we think, oh, I wish I could be present. And then actually I'm present and my body hurts. Oh, It's like, it just keeps on going like that sometimes. There's always something. You know, there's always something. And if we're not aware of what it is, our reaction to either try and grab it or push it away disconnects us from our experience. And that disconnect is actually more fundamentally painful to us than the absence of what we want or the presence of what we don't want. But we don't get that. We don't see that usually unless we're looking really carefully. The disconnect that happens when we contract and the craving and the grasping towards and craving for, holding on to, or the resisting and pushing away, that actually disconnects us from our experience when we become lost in our reaction to the experience and yet not aware of that reaction, believing the problem really is the absence of the thing I want or the presence of the thing I don't want, whatever that might be. If we believe that's really the issue, then we're compelled and committed to get the thing I want and get rid of the thing I don't want. And yet if that worked for us, it would have worked by now. If it works for you, I can't imagine what you're doing here because this isn't a place where it's particularly going to give you much opportunity to get the things you want and get rid of things. It's not really like that, is it? Though as Jack Cornfield observed, one of the senior teachers in our lineage, he once said, you know, people come on a retreat thinking it's like going to the shop, going to the store, the supermarket, you know, and get all these things. But actually it's not. Coming on a retreat is like going to the dump. (laughs) You come here to get rid of the things you do not need to carry around with you anymore that take up all the space and weigh you down. And in that sense, not get rid of as and push away, but actually learn to release the way we unconsciously entangle ourselves and with these things. And so we see these tendencies of pulling towards, of pushing away, or of just disconnecting, of just not being interested in what's going on. Breathing, boring. You know how many breaths I've had today? I can't be bothered watching this one. It's really not that spectacular, you know. It's been going on for ages, it'll probably keep going on, and yet you can catch the mind in its assumption that it'll keep going on. If you ever have the opportunity to doubt that there's another one coming, this breath is really interesting. And you know, one thing that's really interesting about this breath is that one day the out-breath will be the last one. For all of us, it happens this way. The out-breath will be the last one. There won't be an in-breath. But that out-breath won't come with a sign that says, hey, enjoy me, I'm the last one. It'll just be the last one. And yet we can live our lives in the assumption that the in-breath will just keep coming in. And it's not true. One day it won't happen. And if we were to pay attention to our breath with the awareness of that, I think we might find it a little more interesting. It's like, will it or won't it? Let's see. This one, will it? won't it? I mean, if it doesn't, it's no problem. It's all over. Nothing to be done. If it does, actually, it's more complicated. We're still here. But somehow we still seem to prefer that complicated option. 
So in a sense, it's good news. It keeps coming until it doesn't. And of course we can attach and believe in the idea that peace will be when our mind is quiet. Happiness will be when my inner experience is under my control. And that can lead us to struggling with our mind, with our feelings, with our thoughts. Actually, we start to find peace when we can see what's happening without having to control it, without having to fix it, without having to define ourselves by it. To actually let things be and let things go. When it's difficult, we learn to let it be. When it's attracting or we're compelled to take hold of it, learning to let it go. And in that, basically bowing to or trusting in the unfoldment of our life as it is, rather than trying to get the content of our experience to line up with what our preferences tell us we want or prefer. Because it's not possible. If you could do it, fine, do it. But nobody has ever managed it yet. And if you're the first person, of course, your book will be a bestseller. But there's a serious risk that having spent two, three, four, five, six, seven, or however many decades working on it, the fact that it hasn't got us there yet is a sign that it's not going to. And so instead we're asked, we're invited to learn the art of connecting, of what it is to meet, to open to, to include this life consciously in all of its forms, its facets, its expressions, manifestation, allowing us to feel the places that are tender or scary equally as those that are sweet and delightful. It's not an easy thing to do, what we're doing here. It's perhaps as difficult a thing as one could undertake. But we can do it. We are equipped with the basic requirements, fortunately. And this is actually the basis for happiness, to understand the mechanisms of heart and mind, to align our responsivity and our views with what we actually discover to be true in our own experience when we attend to it. Real happiness comes from our deepening connection with life, from our deepening understanding of what it is that frees the heart and mind in the midst of things that are challenging, that are intoxicating, that are uncomfortable. Not in their absence. In their absence we get a nice holiday and sure, it's fine to take a holiday if we can. But life is around us and within us. And we are not separate from it. We cannot set ourselves apart from it in order to dictate to it. And the movement of taking hold of and pushing away experience is an attempt to dictate our life, to say how it should be and what it should be in a way that separates us from it, disconnects us. And that separation, that disconnection is profoundly dissatisfying and painful. When this heart and this mind is not in the grip of that mechanism, there's a natural sense in that, that mechanism of, of grasping and aversion. There's a natural sense of depth, of richness, of life. Even at times deeply poignant, but nonetheless rich. Sometimes sweet, but yet equally perplexing. True happiness is only found in the immediacy of our life, in the here and the now. It's not something we'll find somewhere else. Not through becoming someone else, not through getting something else. And this is something we can know for ourselves. We can understand this. Each of us, all of us. And this understanding is something that continually deepens and leads us further into a, a life that is remarkable and mysterious. 
that is beautiful and yet, of course, challenging but filled with meaning and possibility. In this immediacy of presence, there is a, a natural fluidity, ease and freedom. And then arrive, a sense of arriving not in a place, but in the recognition of what is true. Of the fundamental nature of what it means to be. To be awakened. To be alive. To know that which we have never been parted from which we share with each other, with all beings, with all of life and in fact all things. And in this our heart comes to rest. So let's sit quietly for a few moments together. So may we all, together here on this retreat and in our lives, may we deepen in goodness, in presence, in wisdom and understanding, that we can live in harmony with this life as it is, and with each other and ourselves. For our own well-being, and for the welfare of all beings and of all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.